Good evening to each one. It's, it's good to be here. It's been a while since we've been here, and I've been looking forward to this. Not so much that I get to share with you, but I get to worship with you all. That helps me if it's okay with the station in the back. <clears throat> I just want to say that you may be expecting something a little different this evening, and it probably will be from what you normally process in a worship service. But I want to be sure that we think of this service as a worship experience. The reason that I, one of the reasons that I really enjoy the study of the types is because there is an element of mystery and truth revealed that gives me a greater foundation for my faith. And any time that we can, we can cultivate an opportunity to grow in our faith, that's a worship experience. It should be. And so I want us to be sure that this is not a time of just learning information, but that we allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to help us to grow in our appreciation for who God is, and what he wants us to understand and know about his plan and purpose for our lives. I like for us to bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of being together again, assembled with the purpose of honoring you, of worshiping you, of allowing you to teach us through the word and through those precepts and those realities, spiritual realities that you designed to give us an opportunity to know who you are, what your will is, what your plan is, and that we can respond in faith and experience the power of God in our lives to live a righteous life, a life that is pleasing according to your will and purpose for us. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would anoint this service for our spiritual development and growth and for your name to be honored, glorified, not only this evening, but as we take some of these precepts, these ideas of truth with us, that they can help us process our opportunity to know you better. Go with us, Father. Direct us for your glory, for our eternal good. We ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. <clears throat> this evening, like I said, I think there's probably an element of mystery about this title that we have given the message, A Pitch for Types. Now, I come from a vocation that involves some salesmanship. I'm considered a salesman by some. That doesn't mean I really am, but I attempt to sell things sometimes. And so you may think, and you could be right to a certain extent, that I'm here to sell you on the idea of types. Uh, there's some truth in that. When I go to Bible school to teach, or when I used to go to Bible school to teach, I discovered that students coming to Bible school hesitated to sign up for my class because it was that, that weird-sounding, shady, shadowy, whatever, and they hadn't heard much about it, and they weren't sure it was going to be worth their time. There were some students that came that I discovered uh, that their parents had told them they had to take it. Well, you know how much fun it is to teach students that have that mentality. 
But praise the Lord, they changed their attitude pretty quick. And then there were some that actually I discovered later. Actually, I had somebody tell me just recently, after they heard this sermon, they said, oh, now I wish I'd have signed up for types when I was in Bible school. So I don't know how your reaction will be, and you don't have to tell me. But I hope that you can glean some truths tonight that just help you appreciate what God wants you to know and experience and be blessed by. That's why I'm here this evening. <clears throat> I want to explain types in a little bit. And I've got my board turned around backwards. I'm not going to be drawn in front of you. I don't put my artistic inabilities on display, uh, you know, just live. <laughs> uh, I'll turn around. <laughs> you can see what I attempted to do here in a little bit. But I didn't want you to be distracted during the, the songs and, and the devotional. And I, by the way, I appreciate that devotional, and I appreciate that particular song. That's what we're here for, to learn, to let God teach us some things <clears throat> from his word. But I want to make a couple statements and draw our attention to a few things in Scripture first. If you want to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this passage follows a devotional psalm reading this evening somewhat. And... I don't want to take the time to uh, read all of it. I, I did that this morning. By the way, I brought a message entitled the same thing over at Caswell this morning. They got the, the, they got the uh, abbreviated message because their sh service was in a shorter window than, than what we have here this evening. I understand seeming is unlimited. Oh, my wife says that's not true. <laughs> But I am going to be hurrying through because there's a lot I'd like to say and, and, and a lot I won't get said. So put on your, uh, uh, turn on your fast listening device. And uh, I hope your all's time isn't as fast here as it was over there this morning. You all are on fast time, I know. But <clears throat> beginning at verse 1, and then I'm going to skip down a few verses. But chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians First one, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the, through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. <clears throat> that rock was a type. It was a type of Christ who was coming but in reality, Christ was there, according to what this says. I'm not sure exactly how to understand all that. But what I want us to notice is that God was not pleased with, with some of them because of their actions in the wilderness. It, it talks about the things that went wrong, their idolatry, the way they um, mishandled themselves. And then it admonishes us in verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now verse 11 is the punchline. It's, it's what I want us to focus on a little bit here. Now all these things happened to them for in samples, and they are written for our, excuse me, all the, they happened for them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. That word in samples is translated from the original in the Hebrew from the same word that the word types comes from. And a number of other words that I'll mention later that we, we refer, reference that come from this word. 
and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later. And so we have this passage that helps us understand that, that God says those things happened back there. And Jesus ministering to them as that rock that, that the water flowed from to minister to their needs actually had spiritual significance. And it was a type. It, you call it in samples. Actually, the word example is used here also, and I kind of hurried over it. That word example comes from the very same word. So example, in sample, and then I'm going to bring some other words in, into focus. One of the things I do want to say about type, about me sharing the types, uh, I want you to understand, and maybe you know this better than I do, there are some people that are very skeptical about the study of the types. And I understand uh, there have been those ha who have misused types to say things that they want the scripture to say that maybe it's not supposed to be there. It's inappropriate. And so there are those who say that you should consider types only from an, uh, an objective perspective. In other words, if it isn't referred to in the New Testament, don't call it a type. I'm not in that school. Uh, I, I keep finding types here and there that haven't really been outright mentioned and classified as a type in the New Testament. Now, there are some types in the New Testament that are very obvious. They, it says they're types, and I'll refer to one of those here in a little bit. But... I've discovered, and, and in my studies, I've had others point out things that are not exactly mentioned verbatim as being a type in the Old Testament. But you can see how it became a reality, a spiritual reality in the New Testament. And so I put some credence on, on that reality. So if, if you want to uh, be skeptical, that's your privilege. I'm not saying that you should think... Uh, subjectively, like I do some, but I want you to realize that there is this considerations possibility. And I have some admonition along that line here in a little bit after I get my notes put together here. <clears throat> I uh, thought about standing down there, but that platform's smaller than this one, and this one's a little bit inadequate, but I'll, I'll see if I can't make it work. Uh, <clears throat> there, that might work. Before we get into, uh, well, while we're on this pitch for types and me selling you on the idea, uh, I've got a little poem that someone wrote, or it's, it's a quote. It's not mine. Uh, it's been around. I've seen it different places. It was printed on the back of my little textbook that I taught of, out of in Maranatha. And it just says it so succinctly. I want to quote it for you. The New, that's the New Testament, is in the Old, the Old Testament, contained. So the new is contained in the old. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. I always thought that was a pretty interesting, cute little way of saying it. It says it pretty well. And so the question is, what is a type? Well, a type, as we are thinking of it, <clears throat> is an earthly symbol or example or reality that points to this and portrays a heavenly or spiritual truth. And sometimes it's referred to as a type or an sample, example, a pattern or a figure. And there are a few other words I found in the New Testament that are translated from that original Hebrew word 
that mean type as well, and I don't have them all listed. Now, in the study of types, if you get involved and you have to sit in a class and listen and take a test on this, you'll have to know that there's an anatype involved in this study. An anatype is not something that's against types. The word ana, or the, the prefix ana, actually means not. And so uh, there's, a, a, there's an aspect of studying the types where you have the type and then you have what's not the type. So that's the anatype. Okay. You know why we're called Anabaptists? It's not because we don't baptize. It means we don't baptize children. <laughs> so we, we do not baptize. Oh, children. <clears throat> I think that's, I, I made that up, but I think that's right. <clears throat> that helps illustrate the point anyway. <laughs> and it could be true. <clears throat> so what is an, let me give you an illustration of anatype. An anatype, well, actually, um, yes, I'll go ahead and give this now. There's something else I'm going to bring in. But an anatype or a type is, is what we, an anatype is this not to be uh, the type. And so it is the object under consideration that the type points to. It is actually the reality that is being in focus. And an illustration of that is Jesus as manna. Manna in the Old Testament was a type of Christ. The, uh, it was the, the bread of life in the Old Testament. It was what kept them alive. It was giving their nourishment. It was, it was from God. It was, it was life coming down from heaven to, to sustain life. And that's what Christ is in a spiritual perspective. He is the bread of heaven, life coming down to sustain us in the spiritual realm, and spiritual reality. And so he is the anatype. He is what's in focus. The manna was a type to help us understand who Christ was. So Christ was the anatype. Now, hope you've got that. And the anatype is actually more important than the type. So when we see types, we need to be aware there's something spiritual here that I want to grab a hold on to. I want to, I want to get a hold of that what's not the type. Okay, that's where the spiritual realities are meaningful to us. <clears throat> so what are the, what's the purpose of the types? I've given you a, kind of an idea already, but the one thing that I, I always say, and to me this is the, one of the most important aspects of types, types and shadows, and I'll explain what the shadowy part is here in a little bit, but types and shadows have a way... <clears throat> of making God's word, not it doesn't make it authentic, but it reveals its authenticity. It helps support the truth to have the types revealed to us. And so we can say it's to authentic, authentic, I'm not getting that word right now. The, the validity of God's word and the truth of salvation or the plan of salvation. Another thing that I muse over a little bit uh, about types, or this is kind of my thought, and I'll share it with you because I, it's kind of the way it works for me. But when I was younger, uh, I still like to, but I don't get time, but I like to read the encyclopedia. Just learn what I could learn. You know, thumb through it. But I discovered, I, and looking back, I realized if it was a, a page of solid print, I always flipped to the next page. I kept going until I found a picture. Then I found an interesting picture. Then I start reading, and I, I was interested. I could, I could look at what's there, and, and what I read made sense. 
Well, to me, the types are the pictures that go along with the Old Testament, the encyclopedia of God's truth. So I'm just sharing that with you. That's kind of my interpretation of type. Another really important thing that types do for us, a purpose, and I've already alluded to it, and that is they provide a premise for our faith. As we see that this is God, this reveals God, it's, well, Scripture, in Romans 10, 17, it says that all Scripture, see, now I'm not getting that quote quite right. It, say, it says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God is where we find these types and it's listening and hearing and learning and understanding that gives us the opportunity to understand God. And we understand God, we have a basis for faith. And so this evening, I hope that when you leave here, you have a sense of, wow, I can trust God. That's the God who has revealed himself in ways that there's no question. Now, I read something recently that really bugged me. This scientist professor uh, had five points that underscored why he believes God is, that the Bible is not true, or that Jesus is not really real, that he's a mystical or a myth. He's a mythical character. He came out of people's ideas and imaginations and, and cultures of thinking about things funny, and, and, and he explained all this, and he talked about the contradictions in the Gospels, and, and there are some that you can twist some ideas and thoughts and Peter even says some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. They've been twisted. People twist them to their own destruction. Well, I'm telling you to say this, that that bothered me until I thought about the reality of things. And that is that you cannot understand the word of God properly unless the Holy Spirit is teaching you. And if you're not committed to the Holy Spirit, submitted and surrendered to his power in your life, and you're looking to him for direction... You won't be able to understand it. It won't make sense. And you will deal with extra load of doubt and lack of knowledge. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> What's a shadow? You don't know what a shadow is. We talk about shadows. You see them all the time. You see a telephone pole out here. It's got a big black shadow out from it. The sun's shining bright. And if you're walking down the, the street on, a, on a, a bright sunny day and, and the sun's to your back, you see yourself out there. But you can't really say, uh, figure out. Or if somebody comes up beside you and they look at that shadow, they, they can't really tell that much about you. Or if, if somebody else comes up behind you, you can see they're coming and your, the shadow reveals the reality. There's a person there. And it may go so far as to help reveal to you who that person is because of the way they walk or the fact that they have this hairdo that you recognize in the shadow. There's different things that you may identify the person. There's some things you would know about that person, but there's a lot you won't know. You won't know what color shirt he's wearing. You won't know what color his eyes are. You won't know if he's really upset or not. You won't see the smile or not smile. There's just a lot of things you won't understand about that person by looking at his shadow. Well, the shadows in Scripture are a lot the same way. And I have a verse here to, that verifies that that's the way it is. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. And so shadow, that's, that's one of those places where shadow is mentioned and it's in that context of types. The law had the types were interwoven 
Now, it wasn't all types, but the law itself was not uh, pointing to the righteousness of Christ and the plan of salvation, but it wasn't real clear. It wasn't plain. They didn't understand it well. But we, looking back, can understand, oh, the law said this, and it means this. And so we see the antitype. We see the reality of what the shadows were showing us. Now, you say, how's a shadow get there? Or what's a shadow do? Well, I had this little definition that I often uh, quote, and I say it's a definition. <clears throat> it's something that I put together to help my students understand what a shadow is, what it does. <clears throat> See, where is it? Here it is. A shadow is the causation of a type by its anatype's future reality as seen and manipulated by God from eternity future. Anybody want to stand up and explain what I just said? <clears throat> Come on. Well, I thought a long time and hard and really struggled to put that together and get it right. But it's right. I want you all to know that. <clears throat> but I'm going to use the board now to help you understand it. <clears throat> and I apologize to you from Caswell because I'm saying things you all didn't hear this morning. Uh, and partly because of the time restraints, but partly because my wife will tell you I never can preach the same sermon twice <clears throat> and get it the same. <clears throat> In fact, it is, I kind of think that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so I've um, entitled this board Shadows in Types. And so you'll understand a little bit what I'm saying. Can y'all see it? All right. I'm, I'm fearing for some of you over here. If you, if you want to move, uh, I don't know where you'll go. But back there's a couple seats. But I hate to tell young people to go sit in the back. I like them up front. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. And, and it isn't gender specific, I don't think. I believe you could sit there. <clears throat> so I mentioned that, that shadows are created by God because God's in the future. I don't know if I, how I said that exactly. Um, yeah, God manipulates all that happened here from eternity future. You see, God doesn't, isn't just a God of yesterday and today, but he's a God of eternity. And he has always dwelt out there on that side of, of time, on the future side of time. He's out there. He's always been there. And so he knows. And, and he knows everything. He knows all of what's going to happen in time before it happens. And he can manipulate it and, and calculate it and understand what's coming and, and make decisions and warn people and write the scriptures about what to expect and what's going to happen. And, and like I say, don't forget, he manipulates things for his purposes to say something to us, to help us understand that he understands what's going on. It's, has, it went over his desk first, as some people say. <clears throat> it didn't just happen. And so I've, I've put God in the corner up here. You can't do that. But actually, if you look at the reality of what I'm doing, I, I use this, a, a picture of the sun to depict the energy and power of God. And it's supposed to be a big circle. Most of it's in eternity future. But God is in eternity uh, uh, present. And so he is here now. But from eternity future, 
he was able to, to bring the knowledge of the spiritual realities of God all, that spanned all of time and eternity. He was able to bring that truth to light in what we call time. This is the beginning of time, and I have over here the end of time and then future, uh, eternity future. Now, I'd like for you to turn to, if you want to, I'm going to read from Genesis 1. <clears throat> and like I told him over there this morning, Caswell, if I've confused you pretty bad, I might need to tell you, Genesis comes right before Exodus. <clears throat> I want to read a couple of verses here. The very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. <clears throat> now, if you were casual this morning, don't raise your hand and answer. But uh, the rest of you have a chance to tell me, what day did God create the sun, moon, and stars? <clears throat> I know you know. Don't be timid. Day four. What day did he create light? I just read it on the first day. He separated darkness from light the very first day. What was that light? John said that Jesus is the light of the world. Scripture also says that Jesus spoke the word and things happened on earth. And so Jesus actually was the light. Now, I said that. I didn't say it quite like that this morning. But the spiritual realities of God reflect backwards through time to the very beginning that caused the creation and then had its effect on all the things that are involved in time. And that knowledge coming from God, eternity, future, backwards across the realities, the anatypes of time create shadows to the very beginning. You see... The central figure of time, the very central focus, anatype of time, is the cross. The cross is a symbol of the atonement. The atonement is the one most important spirituality that God and Jesus decided on before the creation began. They agreed on how it was going to happen and, and because of why it was going to happen and all that. All that was in focus before Adam and Eve were even put on the earth. But that spiritual reality that stood there and was real in their minds created this shadow of the cross because, well, they were sinners and there was going to be a need to acknowledge sin and how to deal with it. And so what happened to the first couple when they sinned? They were guilty. They were unclean. They were ashamed. And what did they do about it? They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That was their own effort to clothe themselves in righteousness or cover their unrighteousness. Didn't work. God comes along and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? What happened? And he explained that what they did wasn't working. He would have to, to bring about uh, a remedy for their problem. And so blood was shed to provide cloaks to cover their shame. But blood was shed. That's significant. That was a type. That was a type of the fact that there is, that, that only by the remission of, uh, no, there's no remission of sin without blood. That's a quote from scripture almost. 
And so that was a type very, right there, one of the early types. But, oh, by the way, I didn't finish. <clears throat> the light that created this shadow, actually, I discovered just recently, that was the first type there was. I, I got to thinking, what was the very first type that happened? <clears throat> and I got to reading it. Well, there it is. And <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, clearing my throat too much. And don't apologize for feeding me ice cream for supper, Rosie. <clears throat> that was good. <clears throat> I'm ahead of my notes a little ways. I'll see if I can find it here. Uh, yes. 1 Peter 2.9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That was pointed to, I believe, on day one. Darkness, void, and then God sent the light in to change it. And we, in our sinfulness, have this void and darkness, and we need the light of Jesus to shine in our hearts to change the darkness. That's the first type that I can find recorded in Scripture. And that helps you understand types. <clears throat> oh, by the way, that's significant maybe because it's referred to in the New Testament. I didn't say it was a type, but it's there so vivid that this, it's, you can't deny it. All right, next I want us to think a little bit about some of the things that we see here, that how they, uh, un, we see the unfolding plan of salvation. And I already mentioned that the cross is a central figure of, of human race, of the need of humankind. It's salvation from sin. <clears throat> atonement. That word atonement will come up a number of times. But let's look at the unfolding plan of salvation. In Genesis 3, 9, it says, And the Lord called, un, called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And we already talked about that. And then in verse 23, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them, shedding of blood, the result of sin. And by the way, you've probably heard this, but, but sin and clothing had the same birthday. Is there a relationship there? <clears throat> Satan still tries to make people shameful by removing their clothes and revealing their sinfulness. and that, that Anyway, God wants to remedy those, those issues. And so... We have several types that relate to Christ's death on the cross and the remedy for sin or the atonement. And I want to talk about those by just looking at the board and getting a, a picture of what's, what's here. And I, I have a lot of scripture printed. I won't have time to read it. Like, I'm, like I told him over there this morning, I'm going to make you Bereans. I'm going to make you go home and study the scriptures. See if what I said was true in the scriptures. Now, I could prove it here. And I'd like to, because generally when I preach, I try to use as much, much scripture as possible, because I want you to know that it's coming from, from the word, not from me. And so I, I usually incorporate a lot of scriptures. And I'd like to, and I've got them here. I've got nine pages. Uh, I've got a lot of notes. <clears throat> but a lot of them are just printed scriptures. And I'm going I'm to pull uh, phrases from them and, and not really read them all. <clears throat> So, I want to talk a little bit about the priest 
uh, God's chosen uh, tribe, the Levites. And I mentioned, uh, no, I haven't mentioned this yet. I'll get there. Aaron and his sons were of the tribe of Levi. And uh, when they were sanctified for service, there was uh, a certain procedure they had to go through. They, they took a, a ram, I believe it was a ram, and they, uh, after they had sacrificed it, they washed it inside, they washed it outside, they, they burnt certain parts, they did different things with certain things, but it was done in a specific way to portray the need for the spiritual realities to happen in the sanctifying of the priest. And, and it says, uh, and the priest shall burn all, burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice. Now that's right, now this one, they burn it all. They didn't eat, the priest didn't eat any of this one. It says, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And so in the sanctifying process, they were to offer up this animal that had been washed. And that washing designates it's a type of the idea of being sanctified. And so a priest, chosen man to lead, had to be sanctified to be fit for service. And there was a sacrifice involved in making that happen. And a person who surrenders to God makes that sacrifice to be sanctified and to be available for service. But there's something very interesting here. It says that God, that, that um, in Ephesians we see this. Well, it says that this offering was a sweet savor to, to the Lord. But in Ephesians 5, 1, it says... And, and verse two, 1 and 2, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also had loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. It almost quotes that Old Testament uh, re- uh, reality of, of uh, sanctif- the sanctification process for the priest. And it's actually making Aaron... And the priest, a type of Christ. And Christ is the antitype. He's what, and he's the one that gave ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice. And it was a sweet-smelling savor to God, way above what the priest, uh, or that sacrifice for the priest, I am sure. But there's more to that. Christ actually, in a sense, was a type of us being an antitype of giving his life and sanctifying himself and giving his life for service, and he expects us to do that. So there's a sense in which we're antitypes. And there's another one, and that's, that's uh, the marriage. Uh, we're actually, uh, marriage is a type of the antitype, which is the church, Christ and the church. Well, that was extra. I didn't have that in my notes. But, <clears throat> and I don't have a lot of these things in my notes. I'm sorry. Uh, I might have to back up and, and run again on some of these things. But now I want to look at uh, something that is central to this atonement reality, and it's what's right above it. Of course, this is supposed to be the open tomb, Christ ascending, but that's not quite right, I don't think. I think Christ came out of that tomb before the stone was rolled away, so don't get deceived by a picture. Um, but after the fact, the stone was rolled away to prove that he'd risen. So I, it's okay, but I, I don't want you to get your theology messed up. And by the way, one thing I wanted to say, and I want to say it now, is that types should never be the basis for us creating new doctrines. 
They only verify what is taught in Scripture otherwise and what we understand to be truth. They just fortify the reality that that is what God meant and that's what he wants. And that helps us have a broader foundation for our faith and understanding of what's expected of us to obey and, and serve God. But I, I did allude to the fact that some people have abused types by trying to make new doctrines and say things that aren't there. So um, that's just I'll throw that in there right now <clears throat> again. So, we're going to get to the atonement more later. And, of course, the resurrection happened after the death. But there's some things here, these shadows that I want you to see. And, actually, they do have to do with the atonement and the resurrection. <clears throat> and uh, I won't get to them all necessarily in order. I hope you'll bear with me on that. I think you can understand. But I want to look at a couple of things that pertain, per, that pertain to the resurrection, the type. Um, Christ's resurrection actually was the antitype of things that happened before that in, in, in history. One of them is right here. And, and this one has a shadow from the cross and from the resurrection tomb. This, you can't see back there probably. And so it's just uh, your imagination is probably working overtime. But I'll explain it for you. This is supposed to be a mountain right here. And I'm calling that Mount Moriah. And so that means that these two individuals on here are, are two people that we know a lot about from Scripture. Can somebody that wasn't a casual tell me who that is? Oh, the guy in the front, the younger guy, is carrying a bundle of wood. Anybody know who that was? It's one of you Sunday school students. Who carried the wood to this altar up here on top of the mountain, Mount Moriah? Isaac. Good. <clears throat> I'll have to mark you down for a good grade. <clears throat> the type here is twofold, like I said. One is the, the cross. Abraham had submitted and surrendered to God's request to, to take his son and put him to death. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead. He was done. And he actually, as Scripture says, that he accounted God faithful. He counted God faithful to be able to raise him up if necessary but he was willing to do this and accept whatever God had later. That was submission. That was obedience. But he had reckoned his son is dead. Uh, and by the way, incidentally, this may be coincidental, but I don't think so. No, it's not. I'm trying to get you to wonder if it's coincidental. I want you to realize I believe it's the reality. It took three days to make this trip. Is there any significance to that? And at the top, when Abraham went to kill his son... Then's when God had the ram caught in a thicket that let himself be known and, and the angel stopped Abraham from what he was doing and he untied his son and his son was resurrected back to new life. He had his son back. So there we have a type of death and resurrection on Mount Moriah. Now, here's an interesting reality that some of you don't know and those of you who know it find it very interesting already. And that is that Mount Moriah has a new name today. It's called Calvary. How many of you didn't know that? I'm just curious. Don't, it's not revealing ignorance. It's just, you know, saying what you know. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I was studying types for a while. I find it very interesting. Not coincidental. And so the death in Abraham's mind of his son is, is uh, a shadow of the cross of Christ being put to death. And the resurrection is when this little altar I've got drawn on top of that mountain released Isaac so that there was a resurrection. 
in, of, of a, in a sense, a sort. Okay, that's one. <clears throat> Another resurrection shadow. The ark, when it landed on the mountains of Ararat, it touched down and the water started to go down. So in effect, the ark started to rising up out of the water. Now the ark stayed put on the mountain, but in reality, as the water went down, more and more of the ark came up. So that it was coming up out of the water. Now, can we draw any conclusions from that? Well, let me give you some in interesting facts. Scripture records the very day and the very year that this happened. When that happens in Old Testament, it's like, aha, there's something here to dig for. Figure out what God's trying to say. Well, on the very day, the 17th day of the month, 2,400 years before Jesus came out of the tomb, this ark started coming up out of the water. The very same day. Now, you'll go to your Bible and say, where'd you get that, Nelson? Well, You'll have to study a while to find it. And I didn't really dig that out. Somebody else pointed that out to me. But the calendar's changed and it has a new name now. It went from, see, what is it, to Nisan. It was, can't think of the, the name of the month when it landed. Start, um, somebody could look it up, but not that important. I just find that extremely interesting. And so the ark actually has, is, has a shadow or is a type of the resurrection. And there's some more things about the ark that we'll get to after a bit. But there's another really interesting one that just, I just discovered here not so long ago. And this is one that uh, is kind of, uh, uh, would you say, subjective. I don't really think it is because I think I've got the proof. But it doesn't say so real clear in the New Testament. But you, you be the judge here. <clears throat> this little thing right here that most of you can't see is a stick. Actually, it's a rod that a shepherd would have used or a priest would have used in the Old Testament. It's got some green and red and yellow, or red and, and green on it to depict something blossoming. Anybody know what that is? Very significant instrument that showed up in the Old Testament. Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod that what? Budded. That budded. The story behind this, I'm going to do it real quickly. The children of Israel were out there in the wilderness and they were not happy. Things weren't going like they thought they should. They were miserable. They had problems. And Moses and Aaron, they thought, were just terrible leaders because they just couldn't manage well. And they brought them out there to let them die and all this stuff. And, and actually, uh, there was three families got together. And uh, let me see. I don't have that in my notes. Um, somebody say it for me. Uh, Korah, Datham, and Byron. They challenged Moses. And Aaron. And God was not happy either. And he let the earth swallow them up. And, and I can very, very, I have a very difficult time understanding why in the next few days they were murmuring about this again. Like, you, you want to go down that hole too? What's, what's wrong with these people? And this time Moses comes to God and says, God, I'm in trouble with these people. They just won't listen. Well, I'm putting my words. They're, they're stubborn. They don't get it. And God said, all right, bring the leader of each tribe to the tabernacle. We got a little, uh, we're going to have a little uh, demonstration. <clears throat> and so he brought all the, the leaders of each, one leader, one man, the head of each tribe, brought them. This is supposed to be the tabernacle, if you hadn't figured it out yet. <clears throat> 
brought him to the tabernacle, and he said, all right, each man has a rod, carve his name in it, and then put those rods in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which was right here in the Holy of Holies, but they stayed on the outside, of course. They laid them there by the veil, and God said, leave them there overnight. In the morning, bring them out and see what you see. Well, in the morning, they brought those rods out, and the one that said Aaron on it had budded. Budded. These were all dead wood, just sticks. What's that a type of? We're in, we're in class now, okay? You can talk. What was that type of? Some life out of dead wood. Remember I said it had something to do with this? Resurrection. Life out of death. And you know what God told Moses? He said, you go out there and tell the rest of those leaders, fall in line. This proves that this is my designated authority in Israel. Listen to him. In the New Testament, what did God say when John baptized Jesus? He came down and in an audible voice, he said, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. He was, he was, he was confirming the reality that Jesus was the Messiah, the only authority figure on earth that represented God. And it would be proven by his resurrection. So when you think about the miracle of Christ's resurrection, it gives us no reason to doubt that Christ is the spokesman for God and he is his Messiah, his anointed one. He's the only way to God. <clears throat> you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. It, all this is involved in that. The authority that he had from God was actually portrayed years and years and years before. Oh, if you, don't, if, if you doubt what I'm saying, think about this yet to put on your, uh, uh, on your uh, weight and balances of truth and, and myth. <clears throat> what was in the Ark of the Covenant? There were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. What was in there? Cup of manna. Cup of manna. It was actually, yeah, a, an omer, I think. <clears throat> a golden pot with manna in it. What else? Aaron's rod. That budded. What else? Ten Commandments. The stones. Uh, were they the broken ones? No. No, they were, they were whole. They were the second set. You know what the first set was a type of? Us. We broke the law. We were the broken law. We are the broken law. Christ was perfection in the law. He was perfect. And so... This Ark of the Covenant, this golden box, it was made out of wood. It was covered in gold. The wood stands for his humanity. The gold, his divinity. So he was 100% human, 100% God. And this box represented his life on earth as a person. The lid on top was pure gold. And it had those golden cherubs coming out the top. And I don't have pictures of all this stuff. I just, actually, that's not even my notes. I just got to tell you. But that... All, uh, but that, that gold uh, mercy seat, it was called, represented the purpose of Jesus' life. The bond box is person. 
He was the bread of heaven. He was the sustainer of life. He was righteous, completely righteous to the law. He represented righteousness 100%. And he, he was uh, the resurrection from the dead. He fulfilled the call to complete our atonement. And in doing so, he was the authority and the ultimate Messiah anointed one from God to serve and, and, and be here for the purpose of mercy. And so the mercy seat represents his purpose. And by the way, there's where the atonement comes in, is on the mercy seat. That's what, that's what happened there. <clears throat> I keep talking about atonement. We're going to get there some more. Oh, yeah, okay, I think we'll get there. <clears throat> I have several verses that I'll just read one, make sure I quoted it right. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's Luke 9, 35. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I want us to, to think about the ark a little bit um, in, a do, in a different way. I've told you what it means about resurrection. There's something else I want to say before I get into uh, other aspects of it I, did, I failed to say. And that is that I'm going to talk about the family. It was inside that ark a little bit. And I could ask questions, but that slows us down probably. I'll just tell you. There were eight people in there. Peter says that, that uh, Noah was the eighth person. And I used to say, erroneously, that that meant he was the eighth generation from Adam. And if you, if you stretch it and twist it a little bit, you can make it say that. If you don't count Adam and you don't count Noah, there was eight in between. But really, I decided I need to find out for sure. So I went and got some help from commentators, which I don't, I don't do a whole lot of until it's, I'm desperate. But they, they said, actually, it meant that there were seven other people, and he was the eighth person. He was the preacher of righteousness. So that's what they take. And, and I can accept that. But there were eight people. There is a significance in the fact there were eight people. Eight in the type system there are some, the, the numbers, especially the early numbers in the, in the uh, numerical system, have interesting type significances, but I will just clue you in. Some of those are subjective. And this one is a little bit, but there's a lot of things to back it up. And that is that eight is the number for new beginnings. You see, when you have a seven-day week, the next day is the eighth day. It's the new beginning of the next week. God commanded that the boys... And Israel were all circumcised on the eighth day. And that was a type of Christians having their old life separated from their spiritual reality. And he called that circumcision of the heart. And when that happened, there was a new beginning. And by the way, when the ark unloaded, how many people come out of there? Eight. It was a new beginning. Any trouble with that? And by the way, we meet for worship on the Lord's Day. And it's not always, it's not just the first day of the week, it's the eighth day. Actually, the New Testament says that the disciples were together on the eighth day and Jesus showed up. So <clears throat> that, I'll let the scripture speak for itself and I'm not going to try to make it say a lot more. <clears throat> okay, now there's a lot of things I didn't get said and I might think of some. Uh, there, there is something else I want to say yet before I move on. <clears throat> There's two things. I put, 
picture. I tried to put a picture of the early church. Peter talks about being built out of stones and lively stones and so on. There's a stone church. <laughs> and the shadow is from the, uh, from the tabernacle going backwards. The tabernacle actually has a lot to say about uh, the types of what the church is going to be like, how it's going to function. It actually, uh, if you study, and, and this is a fairly new, um, a new revelation to me, and I don't like to use that word. It dawned on me. What's that? New day. <laughs> anyway, uh, that there's things about this, the tabernacle that teach us how to operate the church. Well, I knew that already, but here's, here was the interesting one, and it teaches us how to evangelize. There's significance, I believe, in the way it was set up and the way it operated. It helps us as a church to understand what's expected of us in bringing the, the lost into, into the fold. This is the fold, so to speak. It brings us, this is called, uh, this, this uh, Holy of Holies typifies Jerusalem. Jerusalem in heaven, the, the four square little gold four square here represents the abode of God. You can see heaven there. And then the uh, holy place represents the church. And the, this out here represents our journey from the world to the church. But, the gate right here is significant. No one could enter except through the gate. And then they had to take care of their sins at the altar, the brazen altar. There needed to be judgment on their sins. And that's what that brazen altar represents. They judge sin with sacrifices. And that, that actually, the shadow of the cross goes over to that. Because it's on the cross that our sins are judged. We bring our sins to the cross and give them to, to God and and the atonement is what takes care of them. And the cross is, is uh, central to the atonement. <clears throat> now, what I want to say is that when Jesus quoted that scripture, I am the way, the truth, and life, it's very possible and highly likely that he was thinking about the tabernacle. Because the gate is considered the way. It's the way. It's the way from the world into the process of salvation. Uh, you don't really have your sins properly dealt with right away, but, this, but we're called in through Christ, and we, have, we, we get knowledge of our sinfulness and what to do with our sin, and then we need to respond to that and, and let our sins be judged at Calvary or the, the brazen altar. And then there's the, the laver, a, bra, a brass laver, and that was made of some, an interesting material. It was made of the women's looking glasses. They used brass. had a little disc of brass that was, shot, was buffed and buffed and buffed until you could see your image in it. That was their mirrors. Their mirrors didn't break. They didn't have any bad luck. <clears throat> but when God told Moses to make that, that implement, he said, go gather up the women's mirrors. What do you think those women thought? I mean, I, what would you women think if we got your mirrors and gathered them up right before you went to church? <clears throat> well, there's significance in that reality. That's a type. Brass is the metal that is a type of judgment. And I mentioned the judgment at the altar of, of uh, the brazen altar. It was brass. That's where sin was judged. And here we have 
sin we have, yes. Our lives are judged by the water of the word. This was full of water. The priest, after they finished killing these animals and got blood stained and all that, before they went into the holy place, they had to wash their hands in the labor or they died. It was serious. They had to be sanctified to serve. Any hypocrite that tried to, and this is the type now, a hypocrite that tries to serve in church and isn't sincere and honest with God and his fellow brethren is going to die spiritually and can take other people out too. That's pretty serious. We need to use the word of God. James calls it the mirror of the word. And he says, pity the person that looks in the mirror of the word and sees himself for what he is, sinful and whatever, and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. He didn't judge the sin in his life that was revealed by the word, the judge of his life. And that's what that's a type of. Now, <clears throat> the water is the word. There's something else here that's interesting that ties in with that. And that is that, that uh, some teachers teach, and I agree with them, that the door into the holy place was four openings. There were five pillars of gold. And there was things about those pillars I'm not going to take time right now to explain, but they explain the, the reality of the gospel on our lives for service. The colors of, the, of, this, uh, of all these um, materials that were woven materials that were made out of um, wool, I guess it was uh, flax, it was flax. <clears throat> Wasn't wool, it was flax. Uh, well, on top of the tabernacle, it was both. They had uh, flocks, they had uh, ram's hair, they had wool, I think, and then badger skins, whatever that was. But anyway, what I want to say is the Gospels are the truth of God that, that, that is what we can use to further the process of sanctification after we've judged with sin. Now, the Gospels can do that, too. They, they serve as a water of judgment on our lives. But they also are the spiritual nourishment and reality we need to be able to serve God. And so, and then uh, we have the veil here. And I ought to turn to that passage. I just don't want to mess it up. In Hebrews chapter 10. Actually, I better be sure I'm right. I think I'm wrong. I think it's, yes, it's. Chapter 10. Verse 20. It says, and I'm going to back up and read a couple of verses before that. Verse 18. Now where remission of these is, speaking of iniquities that he'll remember no more when we, when we repent. There is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We can go right in here to the very presence of God because of Christ's sacrifice, his atonement. We can enter into the very holiest. It says, uh, enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. Then verse 20, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. And so Christ's perfect life on earth is actually what this veil was a type of. It separated us from God's wrath and, and vengeance. I should say vengeance. I don't like that word now. I think that's for eternity future. 
<clears throat> for the future. But he has wrath on sin. And Christ separated us from that, protected us, and gave us a way to be able to nullify that bad standing before God, and then we can enter in. And that, it says, it was, it that, that was a type of Christ in the flesh. His, his, uh, he was here as Emmanuel, one among us. He was... Um, and so, I'm, I'm not quite finished with this. We call this the way, we call this the truth, the Gospels, and we call this the life, Christ's life. And so Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't get to the Holy of Holies without me. Atonement. The atonement was typified when, and this is in the temple now, this veil was split when he died, when he, when he said it is finished, and he gave up the ghost, that that curtain, that veil in the temple split wide open from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but it was God's doing. He did it from the top to the bottom. It opened the way for us to come right into God's presence because of his death, his sacrifice, which was a sweet smelling savor. Okay, I've got to move on, uh, except uh, I didn't finish this. Uh, oh, I didn't finish the church thing. Uh, this was a type of, or uh, yeah, a type of the present day church, and there are some similarities. There's some differences, and and but one thing I want to make sure you notice: I don't, I'm not a proponent of putting crosses on buildings and churches and even wearing them and and having them for decorations to show people are Christians. I, I'm afraid we come close to some idolatry there, but uh, <clears throat> but I put them here to make sure we get the message of this thing about atonement. The atonement is a central aspect of the vitality and reality of the church, the New Testament church, and the present-day church. It signifies death to self. It, a sacrifice of ourselves is it also de uh, uh, significant of Christ's atonement for us, and they go together. <clears throat> oh, one more thing about evangelism. Christ showed us how evangelism works. You bring them in the gate. You deal with sin, then you help them understand the word of God teaches us how to live righteously, and then they can enter into the presence of God by atonement. That's how evangelism works. You're not able to invite them over the fence. You can't lift up the fence and say, come on in. We got a real good thing going here in our church. We love each other. We have a good time together. Just come and listen to the singing. You'll love it. And you can just be part of us. That's not, that's not evangelism. Not if they don't get the message of the gospel that brings judgment on sin and repentance necessary to be cleansed and be part of the holy place. Nobody can see the, the beauty of the church inside without having completely surrendered and experienced the atonement. And I'm afraid too often our, our, our uh, message to the world is we got a nice club over here. It's clean. We're respectable people. You love our singing. Just come and be with us and just keep on just coming and enjoying your, our fellowship. And uh, let's be sure that we don't sidetrack them from the real need of their heart to repent of sin and to let the Holy Spirit 
cleanse them and they can experience the reality of the true golden beauty of the inside of the church. And let's not miss it either. We have a responsibility to daily wash in the labor. And, there, and when we see sin, we need to take it back to the cross and ask God's pardon, repent of sin. <clears throat> and that's a whole message in itself. Um, Josh, if you want to preach that next Sunday, welcome to it. <clears throat> okay. We're back to the ark. This is what I came to preach about. Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, pre- prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So Noah was obedient to God. He condemned the world by his righteous actions of obedience and build an ark and demonstrate all that. Now I have a question. Was Noah saved because he believed that there would be a flood? Or because he was obedient and built an ark? We live in a time when people say, just believe and you've got it made. You've experienced atonement. That's all I have to worry about. You're saved. You're in. But Noah would not have been saved from the corruption of this world if he wouldn't have obeyed God and followed through everything that he was told. Do we have a religion of works? We're not saved because of our works. But if we're saved, we will work. Things will happen in our life that are a result of God moving in our hearts, of the word of God having its effect on us, and we yield to that truth by obeying it. Of course he believed there would be a flood or he wouldn't have built the ark. But if he just believed there would be a flood, history would have stopped. Let's be sure we understand that God expects obedience after salvation. And, and actually involved in the process of salvation. That's what happened with Noah. 1 Peter 3, 2 says, Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherewith few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Uh, And then I've got a few references here that refer to eights, and I already already touched on that. But in Genesis 6, 14, it says, God said to to Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without, with pitch. Now, Brother Joshua was preaching up, up our way one day, and I happened to be there. And he made the comment to the congregation that this pitch was translated from the word of the Old Testament that, that pertained to atonement, right? So I was proud of him. I almost stood up and said, Amen. I might probably said it sitting down. But there was something he didn't understand, I don't think. And I told him later, and, and that's one reason I think I'm here. I, I got in trouble. He wanted me to come here and explain it. But if you, if you look at those, that word pitch, the first pitch is not translated from the same word that the second word pitch is. So there's different, uh, a, a twist to the meaning. But it does have to do with atonement, both of them. 
And I, I, I couldn't quite understand, and I still don't understand it all. I'll tell you, I'm still, I'm still digging. Not, not like I maybe ought to be because there's so much here. But when I, um, there were similarities and yet they, weren't, they were different. And so I looked at the word within and the word without, and that helped put it in perspective. So let's, let's see if I can sort this out for you. We have uh, the first one is kofar, and the second one is kofur. Now, it sounds a lot alike, and they are very similar, but they are different uh, original words from the Greek, uh, from the Hebrew. <clears throat> now, here are some of the, uh, not all of them, it's not extensive, but I'm going to pick out some that help us understand the, the uh, tenor of the first word that was uh, translated from kofar, and it was this, it's to placate or cancel. Um, it's this figuratively to expiate or condone, to placate or cancel, appease, make an atonement, cleanse, listen all, forgive, be merciful, pacify, pardon, purge, put away, reconcile, reconciliation. Those are all words that are translated from that word in the Old Testament. And so you get that idea of atonement very, very clearly. Uh, to forgive, be merciful, um, to pacify, that the idea of, of answering the, the uh, requirement of God to be able to be holy by offering a sacrifice, and Christ was that sacrifice that pacified God. Um, pardon, to deal with sin, to purge sin away. Okay, that's, that's the one on the inside. Now, I went to the word within, and it, it has these words. It talks about family, especially family. Um, and, and it talks about um, home. Um, it mentions palace, uh, inside, inward. And it, it talks about things that, that help us understand. It looks like a close-knit family, as I can de decipher. And so... The pitch is atonement for those who are inside. That's, that's what, I'm, what I'm reading, what I'm sorting out. And then we have the, the, the wall. <clears throat> and then we have the outside. Now, what, how do we sort that out? So, kofir means, uh, and, and we'll give you some of those uh, understandings and actually they have some of the same and yet there's other things that are different. It says properly a cover, um, a village, or um, then it mentions bitumen, which is is what uh, the pitch actually was. And it says figuratively a redemption price, a bribe, um, ransom, satisfaction, sum of money. To be bought with a price. And so that one's a little hard to sort out. And, and say, I can nail that down. This is just exactly what it means. It takes on another aspect of atonement. But why is it on the outside? So I looked at without. And the word without says to sever, to separate by a wall, outside, outdoors, um, street, highway, without. And I got the picture. And this is just one of the several interpretations I've come up with. But I get the picture that this is a type regarding the 
the atonement that would be offered to the world first at Jerusalem and then to the Gentiles. They're on the outside. And scripture in the New Testament talks about breaking down the middle wall partition, the thing that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. But I believe there's more to it than that. I believe it has to do with, with some of the aspects of, of our, our uh, knowledge of, of God and, and uh, the way the atonement process can get to us. And so I have a lot of scriptures that, that uh, use printed here that use those different words, but I'm not going to take the time to go there. Uh, that's, that's your Berean responsibility. I will read this one. Um, in Genesis 32:20, we have uh, kofar. That was uh, the first word, the inside. And, and say ye moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease, that's that word, him from the presence that goeth before me. And afterward, I will see his face, preadventure he will accept of me. Uh, that's talking about Jacob and Esau's meeting where Jacob wanted him, his brother, to forgive him. And he says, I will appease him. So he gave him a, a, an offering so that he could be released from the, the, the offense. <clears throat> and Christ provided that offering for us on our behalf. And, and yet, um, I think that starts out at Jerusalem and then goes to the rest of the world. All right. <clears throat> I found this interesting. Um, one of the words that comes out of the word um, kofar is uh, it, re it refers to a um, to spikenard or camphor or cypress. It has the idea of something with fragrance. And so the atonement was a sweet smelling fragrance to God. And it's, it's kind of wrapped up in this pitch thing. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that? I didn't either. And it was just kind of like, really? And then somebody made the, uh, made the evaluation. Well, with all those animals in that ark, they needed something. <laughs> A sweet-smelling savor. <laughs> and so Noah's ark is the provision for salvation, death, and destruction. His ark was what could save anyone from destruction, from the, the, the world, the death that was coming. And he used, uh, and Noah had provided a perfect construct of what God had, had said must happen. He did everything according. Notice how God gave him commandment. He said, build it with gopher wood. Build it so many feet long, cubits long, so many cubits wide, so many cubits. It needed to be that way to, be, to function properly. And then he said, put rooms in it. He put pens in there for the different animals and for them to live in. And, and, and Noah followed instructions right to the letter. Was that important? It wouldn't have been if he'd done all that. But he didn't do one important thing that I would have detested. I, felt, I feel so sorry for Noah and his sons putting pitch on that thing. Pitch is a mess. It's derived from the sap of trees. It's sticky. It's gooey. It's, it's awful. 
And on those hot days when that stuff would work, when you could work, the, the spritzes and the splatters that get in your skin burn. I know a little bit about tar, and I'm making that comparison. But they had that job to do. And by the way, think of how big that thing was. A football field and a half long? I can just see sons out there putting, smearing this thing on day after day after day. Dad, do we have to do this? This thing looks like a good boat. What's wrong with it? Why do we have to do this? Oh, yeah. By the way, got to get inside and do it, too. <laughs> Whew. They were obedient. They did it. Do you know that Christ, think about that pitch as being the atonement. His father asked him to live a perfect life. Do everything right. Exactly like I've told you. Follow the law exactly. Live a perfect life. And Jesus did that. He honored that. And it wasn't all pretty. There was a lot of suffering. There was a lot of things he had to deal with that were not fun. Did not feel good. In the, in the, 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 before the crucifixion. Before all that. He was accused of being uh, <clears throat> born out of wedlock. He was accused of, of uh, different things by the the elders of the, of the people. He had a, a rough road to hoe, but he lived that perfect life. Now, I've a, I got a question for you. If they wouldn't have put the pitch on the ark, would it have floated? Would they have been saved? No. Nope. Just, a, just an exercise of futility. All that work. And obedience. But they wouldn't have listened on that one point of atonement, we'll say. They would have been lost with the rest of the world. Now, if Jesus lived the perfect life, he obeyed his father to the, to the ultimate, did everything right like he did, and, his and Jesus dreaded the atonement. He said, Father, if there's some way for this cup to pass from me, please let it happen. He did not look forward to it. It was misery. It was, he knew it was awful. But he was obedient. But if he wouldn't have gone through with it, There'd been no salvation for any of us. Salvation plan wouldn't have floated either. Thank God for Jesus' obedience, for his willingness to suffer for us. And then go in your devotional life and read from the cover from the beginning to the end of Peter's writings. And take a little notepad and write down how many times he uses the word suffer. He says, have the mind of Christ to suffer like Christ was willing to if you want to be obedient, if you want to follow through with God's plan for your life. Be willing to suffer. It doesn't say we have to go out and torture ourselves and, and put pitch on an ark. But we have to have that mindset that we're willing to die to self and to suffer when it's necessary for the cause of Christ. And in so doing, we're following an example of our Savior and we, fall, we, we follow in his footsteps to salvation. In obedience, to confession of sin. And these things are hard. These things are, are like pitch. But it has to do with atonement. It's, it's hard work. It goes against the flesh to admit to sin, to confess, to repent. But if it doesn't happen, no matter how good we live a life, we're not going to be saved. We haven't experienced the atonement. We won't float. We'll be lost. 
And so the cry is, the call of this, of this message tonight is, are we serious with God? Are we willing to identify with Christ's death and that we die also? And that we're willing to suffer, have the mindset of suffering for the cause of Christ and righteousness in our lives and in the church, for the benefit of the church? You know, I hear people mumbling and complaining about how things go in the church sometimes. And I'm thinking, so who is king? And who is judge? Is it Christ or is it us? Scriptures tell us don't murmur, don't complain. That's your way of chiseling away at your possibility of salvation because that's not faith. That's not obedience. That's letting self rise to the surface. Atonement begins to be ineffective. We need to wash at the water of the word of God and allow judgment on things in our life that don't match the word of God. So that we can have entrance into the holy place and enjoy the beauty of communion and unity. And that, we don't have time for that. That's a whole lesson. Uh, that's three lessons right there. Of what, how, the, how this tabernacle explains the, and, and, and gives instruction, actually, in retrospect, of how the church is supposed to function. Communion and oneness. And by the way, just a little side note. It's not 8.30 yet, and I know that's way too late, but i got to tell you something. This rod that budded was almonds. When God told Moses and Aaron to have that craftsman create the lampstand in, the, in here, in the tabernacle, he said, make those, those stems that come out from the sides, make all those to be almond fruits. They budded. They had leaves. They had buds. They had, they had the full mature almond nuts and everything on there. Is there any chance... That God had this in mind when he had the lampstand made? There's something else I see there. It's the very buds are important. In your life, if this, the, the response to truth is budding, nurture it. You might not be perfect, but nurture it. And then it can bloom. And then it can yield fruit. It's called, it's called what I call... Um, <clears throat> Progression of, of sanctification. We get, are sanctified when we're saved. Completely sanctified. But as we go, we discover we're working with the, our, our nature, our, our old will. And so we have to come back. And John says if we say we do not sin, we lie. But he says we come back to, the, to our Savior and we confess our sins. And we find our way again. You keep blossoming and blooming. And becoming more mature and in, in, in the provisions of Christ. And I see that there. One more thing I want to say about that. And then I've got, and then, then there's a verse I want to finish up on. Then I'll let you go. My wife and I were privileged to take a trip to Israel some years ago. And as we were riding the bus over the countryside, it was in, in March. And we saw, I saw this purple hue out on the side of the, of the hill. And I asked the, the tour guide, I said, what is that? He said, oh, that's the almonds. They're budding. He said, they're the first thing that buds in the summer, in the spring. And it was like, ah, oh, yeah, first fruits, atonement, Jesus. Every spring, 
reminds us of what God thinks about almonds. <laughs> They're first, and they represent Christ's atonement. Resurrection, I guess I better say. And that's the completion of the atonement. And I didn't get to read you the verses I wanted to on the atonement. <laughs> I mean, uh, on... Uh, But I said I'm going to quit after I read one more verse, so I better listen to myself. <clears throat> um, I wanted to explain the like figure. Uh, maybe this is the verse I'll finish on. I was going to do another one, but now since I've committed myself to one verse, I'll do this one. In, in uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, and I'd like to read the verses preceding that. You all do that. The homework assignment, it talks about Noah and 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 the preparing the ark and so on, only a few uh, eight souls were saved. But in verse 21 says, The like figure, or the type, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism saves us? The like figure? Do we understand baptism? Oh, I'm going to show you how baptism saves us. Don't we believe that we're saved before baptism? Yeah. Atonement is what's necessary. Well, here it says we're saved by baptism. I want to explain this to you. It says in parentheses in Peter's writings, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And so being saved is a continuation. This baptism is this continuation of identifying with the atonement. And what I've told you all about repentance and continuing, it's that good conscience, that good conscience. As part of being baptized, it's not a one thing done and done. Baptism has some different facets to it. And one of those is identification, identifying with. I read a scripture this evening already in, in uh, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 or 2, where it says that the children of Israel followed, they were baptized in the, in the Red Sea as they followed Moses. They were baptized with Moses. No, they weren't baptized. There wasn't any water flowing. It was dry. And I say this guardedly because I don't really, maybe I shouldn't say it. It's, it could be misunderstood. It has to do with immersion and all that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> I just say they weren't immersed that time. But they were baptized. What was that about? It was because they identified with the plan and went with it. They joined in and went with it. They identified with it. <clears throat> when the ark door was open. These people were baptized in that they identified with the program of salvation. And so they got on board. You see, one aspect of baptism is you identify with, with the church. You identify with God's program of salvation. And when you're baptized, you're making a, a public proclamation that your conscience is good. Because Christ has done the atonement work in your life. And you're identifying with that program. And so that's why you're being baptized. And so if I'm wrong, I'd love to have a discussion. Find out how and how to correct it. But I want to give you that to think about. Are you identifying? Are you living a baptizing experience? Continuing to be identified with the program of salvation. It's not a one-done deal. And that verse I wanted to read you, I'm going to tell you what it is so you can read it. And that's Hebrews 8, 5. And then go read Hebrews 5, 8. That's another good one. Okay, let's stand for prayer. <clears throat>